good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Lauren Groff, who was recently here in Winston-Salem for the Bookmarks Festival and is here today to discuss her new novel, Matrix. Lauren, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you for having me. So this is this is one of those novels. I you know, you could read this novel quickly, but it's kind of like you could eat a chocolate brownie sundae quickly, but you know, you, you're <laughs> rich to do that. You want to enjoy it as you go along. Um, but let's start out. Tell us a little bit about, about this main character, Marie de France. How did you find out about her? What made you think she would be a good subject for a novel? Well, back in college, I thought I'd I I thought I wanted to be a medievalist for a little while. I was studying ancien français and uh, in the which is old French. Yeah. And in the course of studying, I came across the lay of Marie de France. The she she wrote this book um, based on the the narratives that were coming from Brett, Brittany at the time, um, and they're called lay, and they're fantastical, kind of amazing basically short stories in uh, poetic form. And I looked into the author, she's the first published female poet in the French language that we know of, um, but there's not much that we knew about her. So uh, I it sort of have had her haunting me as a ghost for the past 20 years. And it was only until um, I came up against two other elements that I sort of saw the, the novel of uh, Marie de France coming into focus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, from the beginning, she seems to me uh, an outsider. I mean, she's, uh, she's the child of royalty, but the illegitimate child of royalty. She doesn't really seem to, uh, there, there's issues with her own home, her, her mother dies, and so she doesn't really fit in in her own home. She doesn't really fit in at the court. Um, and then she gets sent by Eleanor um, to, you know, this nunnery where she doesn't feel like she fits in there. Talk about how the sort of her otherness um, shapes her character. Yeah, so she's she's definitely a character who's on the outside. Uh, she's raw and rough and uh, kind of domineering and um, she's too eager for her own good. She's basically a giant nerd right? the way that I was in high school. Just like Every room she goes into, she runs into, and she's ready to uh, join in the disputations between, you know, the clerics, and that's not done by a woman. So she's just, she's someone who doesn't have a whole lot of experience in the world. She's not sophisticated, um, but she's very, very smart. Uh, and she's educated at a time that women weren't educated. So even though in the beginning, you're correct, you know, she was on the outside, basically from birth, she slowly figures out a way of making um, the outside become a central position in the Abbey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she's very young at the beginning. Talk, talk a little bit about her. You I mean, you mentioned that she's, that she has a, an experience and a naivete, but she's what a teenager when she goes to the Abbey to begin with. Yeah, she's 17 years old and uh, she had already spent a couple of years 
uh, alone, very, very lonely, taking over her mother's estates, her her maternal lines of state that, you know, if they knew that legitimate um, heirs were uh, gone, then, um, the, uh, you know, the people would have stripped her of it. And so she, she silently took care of her estate. And then she went to the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine um, and Henry II in England. And there she, she was supposed to learn uh, the art of civility, but I don't think she did a very good job of learning all that. I mean, she, she cannot dress very well. She uh, is not uh, silken-tongued the way that other people are. She, she's still quite rude when she gets cast out of this, the court. And I love that, you know, you see this real contrast um, when she shows up at a place where daily life involves things like sitting in a freezing cold chapel in the middle of the night, working out in a muddy field, and she's just dressed, you know, wildly inappropriately for that kind of <laughs> life that she's, that she's been sent into. Um, yes. So, so Maria is destined for the life of a nun. She is sent by the queen to, to, to this nunnery, to this abbey. And yet, at least at the beginning, we feel that she doesn't really believe some of the basic tenets of, of Christianity. Um, talk about the role of, of faith, not just in, in Marie's life, but in the novel as well. Yeah, I was wondering when I was going into the research of this book, um, how pervasive belief was back in the day, because mm -hmm. the historical records that we have are basically, they were written by clerics, right? But, and basically male clerics too. Um, there's not a whole lot of the commoner or the common person or uh, the unbeliever or the the non-professional religious person. Um, there aren't a lot of of leftover remains. Um, what we do have, though, is a totally separate narrative uh, tradition, right? So there's the narrative tradition of the church, but there's also at the time a um, a simultaneous narrative tradition of courtly love, which um, you get, was something that uh, was born in the courts of very powerful people like Eleanor of Aquitaine. And, it, you know, the, the troubadours, the, the people who are paid to create songs and stories, um, created this their own sort of grid of ideas, a lot of which are actually very contrary to the, the narrative um, upwelling from the church. So um, in, in ideas, in the narrative tradition of courtly love, adultery is something actually that's quite um, aspired to, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is obviously not in the Bible. It's not something that, you know, Moses came down from the mountain and was like, <laughs> adultery's fine, don't worry. You Actually, in fact, it's a great thing. Um, so what I saw was that there were multiple narrative traditions taking place, um, one of which was very, very secular. Uh, even though it was inflected with a lot of the symbolism of Christianity at the time. And so even though it's possible that every single person who ever went to a nunnery was, you know, had a vocation, I, I didn't believe it. I, I sort of felt like people at the time were just as complicated and interesting and um, held contradictions within themselves as people do today. So uh, I gave Marie this role of being not necessarily an unbeliever, but 
she deeply questions a lot of the the stories and a lot of the things that she's told that she should uh, believe in. Um, I think her relationship at the beginning with God is more like um, he is a relative of hers that she knows exists, but you know she's never really met him. Yeah. Right. Basically, right. That I think that's what she thinks at the beginning. I mean, having having written a novel that encompasses medieval monasticism myself, I've always been fascinated by this idea that, you know, for many people, especially for younger sons and daughters of nobility, um, you know, the only comfortable life that they could have where they didn't have to work too hard and, and would be guaranteed food and shelter uh, was to go to the monastery. And mm -hmm. I would imagine that a lot of people would choose that sort of safety net regardless of what their personal beliefs might have been. And we certainly see that, you know, as late as Jane Austen, there's, you know, all these parsons who are like, eh, they're not really, you know. <laughs> uh, so I, I love the way this novel kind of gets at that that tension. Um, there's a great quote that, you know, staying on the subject of God for a minute, that, that Marie says, animals are closer to God because they have no need of him. What, what does she mean by that? And how do you think that applies to her own evolving relationship with with divinity i believe that marie is sort of thinking in terms of possibly magnets at that moment even though she wouldn't have understood what magnets were but there, the idea that um you, you know when you put magnets some some ends of magnets together they sort of push apart and i think that um for her at this point the closer she feels like she's coming to god the further god goes from her and so and because animals are not desperate for that kind of elevation that kind of relationship um aren't sort of praying every day and, and putting themselves you know prone on the floor in the shape of a cross in order to come closer to god then um i think she believes that uh you know it's just much more naturally available to them i think um yeah i think that um Probably she would say that also um, our intellects get in the way of our uh, understand our in instinctive understanding of the of divinity, right? Mm -hmm. The the idea that there is something extraordinary and precious in in all life forms, um, and the fact that we believe ourselves to be separate from the animal world is actually making us be very far apart from. Um, that spark of divinity. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 hearing like Coleridge and Wordsworth as you're talking about this. You know, Coleridge talking about how how we really connect to the to real moral truth through instinct rather than through knowledge. Wordsworth talking about children being fresh from the hands of God. You know, um, so it I, I, it just fascinates me how those ideas continue to play out over the centuries. This novel is set in the 12th century is that right yeah yeah i marie comes to the um abbey in 1158 so mm -hmm. and then she dies in in the um 13th century so you, you touched on this a little bit before but i want to go back to it um because one of the things i write about in in my novels and in particularly in the lost book of the grail which is kind of my mm -hmm. monastic novel um is the way that that books and manuscripts can preserve stories for hundreds and even thousands of years um, what, what was left of Marie's story? What was written down at the time? Uh, was it just her poetry or, or how, how did you find the other pieces of her story that, that still exist? 
There aren't many other pieces of her story. So th she has lay, the, the you know, the collection of lay. She has a collection of fables um, that are actually quite amazing. And I, and in some ways, I, I love them as much as I love the lay. And then she's said by some historians to have written a life of a saint. Um, I'm not convinced. It, the style doesn't seem the same to me. And I'm not a historian, right? And, and I don't parse these things very deeply, but I do read a lot and it just seems not correct to me. Um, but, you know, we don't know anything about her, really. I mean, we there are a lot of suppositions. Like, she, um, she was obviously educated, so she was obviously a noble of some, yeah, some yeah. Um, way. At the time, almost nobody was educated except for the no nobility. And, no, and even a lot of noble women were not educated unless they were expected to take over large estates while the men were off fighting and crusades or like off at war um so so we do know for a fact that she was an educated woman which leads us to believe that she might have been an abbess from france in england or she might have been um even some people think that she might have been um the daughter of eleanor of aquitaine from her first marriage to louis lisette um marie of uh, bourgogne um, so who knows? Well, I mean, really, honestly, nobody really knows who this person is. And it's the only um, words we have about her are the words that she wrote herself in her preface and yeah. her lay. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's where the fun is, isn't it? I mean, I was talking to Marie Benedict the other day and she said what she loves about, I mean, her most recent historical novel, there was a lot of information about the main character, but there was still what, what Marie called the ellipses. Um, mm -hmm. which is where the historical novelist gets to have fun. You look, it sounds like you, the life of Marie de France is one big long ellipsis. Um, were there were there particular places that you had to fill in where you where you took a special glee and and you found especially fun to to you know create filling in those those empty spots in the historical record? Oh my gosh, the whole thing was fun, right? I mean, you know this, right? It's it's all it is is um just like joyous puzzle making or puzzle piecing together. It's it's mm -hmm. so incredibly wonderful to do from beginning to end. Um it's just yeah. Um I think that the things that I was I felt most mischievous about for sure were the the mystical visions that many of which actually came from visions of other mystics at the time, some female, yeah. some male. And I was, and there's a whole, um, I guess, lexicon of symbolism that one has to be somewhat familiar with to even begin to understand what these, these visions are saying or meaning, you know, the color green is, uh, you know, everything, what a rose is. I mean, all of these, all of these things sort of have multiple different layers of symbolic information in them. And it was so gleeful to take these little pieces that other people wrote that were somewhat blasphemous in in a way, and then attribute them to my Marie um, in her her little book of visions. Yeah, I mean, I certainly thought of um, Julian of Norwich, you know, in, as far as you know, living in England, female mystics um, from from that time period. Um, we can we can learn so much, and I certainly have learned so much about not just the historical details, but sort of the feel of monastic life of a thousand years ago 
by standing in those ruins that still dot the English countryside, visiting those cathedrals that still stand. Did, did you have a chance to do any of that? Or was this a, I'm stuck at home in a COVID lockdown book? <laughs> well, luckily I finished it before COVID uh, and I was just editing it after. Um, so yeah, I have been to many ruins in England before. I've lived there um, for months at a time. And, and you know, this is my favorite thing is to go visit the ghosts. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've, yeah, I've been to the place where um, Shaftesbury uh, had been and Barking. And so like, I mean, there's not much there, right? I mean, you can sort yeah. of sense something, but because of Cromwell coming in and like tearing up uh, a lot of the the remnants of the Catholic Church and, and instituting the Anglican Church. There's like a, the ruins are really ruins, and I think a lot of the, even the the chapel stones have turned into fences and yeah. <laughs> other people's houses, and that's kind of beautiful too, right? It's a very like stunning and and lovely idea. Um, so no, I didn't. I I didn't have to go back to England in order to write this book. I did go, however, to an actual convent in Connecticut that's extant, where the the it's a Benedictine. So the nuns actually um, they they um, go to prayer six to seven times a day, um, and everything they do is prayer. I mean, the work that they do out in the gardens and the the food that they make it's all prayer, and it's all beautiful and. Um, that was my field trip for this book. Yeah. And that was extraordinary and it gave me so much, nothing nothing in terms of plot, of course, or, or even in terms of um, many of the images or detail, but it gave me a subtler understanding of the interpersonal dynamics between people who are enclosed in a place forever together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I found, you know, just, you know, going to a Compline service in a thousand year old building mm -hmm. or, um, you know, that, that, that sort of letting that feeling just soak into your bones for, mm. for a while, uh, as you said, it doesn't necessarily give you details, but it helps you understand um, more the emotional tenor of, of being in that, that space. Um, mm -hmm. So Marie sees huge contrast when she, between wealth and poverty, when she leaves the court and arrives um, mm -hmm. at the Abbey, which the Abbey is quite poor when she first gets there. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about the economics of of the era and how they affected the life of this character? Sure. Yeah, the economics of the era were feudal, right? It was a feudalist system at the time, and um, and there were very very powerful abbeys at the time too, and in fact. Um, there were multiple abbeys that had more lands than the crown did at the uh, right, and so were actually richer, um, which is kind of magnificent and interesting. But in order to um, to run a great estate like this, one needed to be um, conversant in multiple languages, um, to be able to write, to be numerate, um, and to be able to sort of um, to do everything in in a very real way, and so um, Marie comes in from this background of having run a different estate, a smaller estate, but a, a family one in men, and so she's able to um, communicate with the workers and the people in the fields. Um, but she 
also has this insatiable drive too, which is something of uh, the capitalist in her, right? So she she's very hungry for her Abby not only to do well, but to to grow and to become so powerful that there are no threats to her sisters and her nuns. And so even though this is a feudalist system, it's also to Marie, uh, like she, she kind of sees it as a proto-capitalist in some ways. Yeah, I, I love what you said about language. I think it's really easy for us to forget. And this is this is the period not that long after the Norman Conquest that you mm -hmm. had, you know, the, the working class essentially speaking Anglo-Saxon, the, mm -hmm. the ruling class speaking French, and the, the church is speaking and writing mostly in Latin. And so, so she really has to be pretty conversant in, in all three of those to be able to be effective manager of this this thing that is both um, a religious institution and, you know, a corporation, basically, a, mm -hmm. a, you know, they're renting out fields and growing things. And um, so I, I like the, I, I loved seeing her having to sort of being forced to shift in between those languages, some of which she's more comfortable in than others, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, she never got a great deal of um, ease in English and in, in, yeah, at least in my yeah. vision of her, yeah. yeah. So, one, you know, you're writing about um, a writer. You're writing about a poet, um, and I, to me, I felt like there there is a poetic quality to your writing in this novel. Um, did, was that were you influenced by Marie's poetry itself, or are there other poets that that you know you look to in sort of crafting that kind of style? Yeah, I. Um... I was definitely influenced by Maria's poetry itself, but you know, I, I came into writing as a poet, um, not a not an excellent or successful one, but I was <laughs> I was a poet at first, and I thought I would I would write poetry forever, and it's been I think four years since I've written anything, even the tiniest of sonnets. Um, but um, you know, when I when I do sit down to work, I like to read poetry because. I, I find it um, intensifies, it focuses, um, it puts a huge amount of pressure on the line um, and the line as a, a means of subversion and as a means of um, building, right? So it, it's both a brick, a brick in two senses is a brick to, to build the work, but it's also like a brick through the window, every, every poetic line. Um, so I, I took a lot from you know, the people that I was reading at the time um, ran the gamut. I mean, I, I was reading, a, I always read a lot of Emily Dickinson because she was my first great love. I just love her so much. Um, you know, I, um, Louise Glick, um, let me see, uh, James Merrill. I was reading Richard Wilbur, I was reading Kevin Young. I mean, you know, I, I start the day with poetry. Um, it, it just, it's like the bracing shock of cold water to the face. Yeah. Well, you might have some argument from some of your readers about whether or not you're still a poet, but we won't we won't go too far into that. Um, let's talk about structure just for a second. Um, yeah. One of the things that you know, the, a lot happens in the first chapter, um, and we move through a lot of time. We go, we we, we okay, we don't we start out with uh, with her arriving at the at the abbey, but then we do a lot of sort of backstory, and then we get back to that. Um, but then between the first chapter and the second chapter, the, the action is completely continuous. Mm -hmm. um, so, so really two questions. One, um, how do you decide in your mind when it's time to start a new chapter? 
And two, how do you decide what parts of the story you're going to skip over? And those those hiatuses aren't always in between chapters. How do you how do you decide to place those? Yeah. So um, I stru structure was a huge challenge for the first probably I don't know. Um, five drafts i mean i really the first five drafts were really just me writing down the scenes and trying to intensify the scenes through her life i and and st starting to see characters come into focus start, starting to see marie come into focus um but they were all scattered i mean it was very fragmentary i didn't really have a structure and then halfway through writing the book i mean i write many many drafts i throw yeah. them all out i cry i start over again right <laughs> this is just the way that i do it um but I um I was doing some more research because you don't know what you don't know until you you know actually sit down and write and I and I kept coming up against this um this labyrinth um there's this labyrinth in the the cathedral de Chartres right like the cathedral yeah. in Chartres um that sort of inset into the ground is so unbelievably beautiful it's this unicursal you know it well right we have this one in our driveway that's based on <gasps> the one in Chartres come so if you, if you come to dinner on Saturday night you can walk our yeah our that's yeah. amazing <laughs> oh my god that's so exciting right so like it haunts you as soon as you like yeah, see yeah. one of these you see them everywhere they're mm -hmm. everywhere um, and so I was haunted by this labyrinth and it was in everything. And, and, you know, in the world itself, I started seeing them everywhere. And I was like, what is going on? Um, and, and I started to do research into labyrinths and, you know, I, I think they were supposed to symbolize the, the Holy Pilgrims um, uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem and you're supposed to like walk them. And it's like, there's an incredible long history of them. And then I came up against this apocryphal story about Eleanor of Aquitaine, which is that when Henry II had the great love of his life, um, Rosamond, um, oh God, I forget her last name, the something, Rosamond, to Clercy, I think. Um, he apparently, apocryphally, um, put her at the center of a labyrinth that he had made in order to keep her away from um, Eleanor, whom the whole world thought was an evil, like adulterous, horrible woman, um, so that Eleanor couldn't get Rosamond and kill her. <laughs> and Rosamond died early and everyone said, ah, Eleanor found a way to poison Rosamond, right? So I found this and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Right? Like, first of all, it gives me um, something for the nuns to do, something um, against which Marie can sort of start to build her um, her mystical visions and uh, her her life in the second part of the book. Yeah. But it also gave me the the foundational structure of the book itself. So um, it is for me, and I don't think that any reader would find this at all. But structurally built on um, not only the concept but the actual physical form of a labyrinth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing. Um, so. I think we could see, we've talked about Marie as sort of a literary icon. We, you can certainly see her in this novel as a feminist icon, um, but you can also see her in this novel as a queer icon. Um, mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, my knowledge of queer history is mostly limited to the United States with the exceptions like Alan Turing and others. But, um, but I knew nothing about, you know, what that might've looked like in, the 12th century or the 13th century. Um, so, so talk a little bit about that aspect of her life and is it 
is it wholly imagined or or are there is there some sort of documentation of that from that period no it's wholly imagined mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah i i would not put that on the the real person um but i think that for my character who is an outsider who felt like an outsider all of her life um and was not comfortable with the dictates of her gender mm -hmm. and um is a a very carnal person, yeah. just like, just period. I mean, she's an animal in a way that um, I think that she she just really loves her body and she loves, you know, the body and she loves expressing herself through the body. This is who she is. Um, it, it just felt as though that were who she is, one. Two, um, the history of the world is full of silenced queer people, right? Just because um, they weren't recognized in a lot of the historical documentation didn't mean that they didn't actually exist at, at any given time, right? 10, 10 to 50% of humanity has lust um, for you know the same sex. So I think, um, I think too, there's an, another amazing, I read this amazing book, um, sort of like about this this sort of idea about like the queerness in uh the middle ages and um one of the things one of the points that the author made and i can't remember the title i can see the the, the cover of the book but i can't remember the title right now but she, um she was like um because the people codifying the rules by which one was supposed to live were clerics not only clerics but male clerics yeah. um who were um, not conversant with women's bodies on purpose, right? Never, they didn't understand women's bodies. The idea that sex could be something without a penis involved was so outside the realm of imagination that it became, um, you know, like it was not even, like the idea that women could have sex together was, it just didn't exist. It wasn't a sin because it didn't exist, right? It was just un. Out, out of this world. And I thought that was so funny. I actually thought that was like, yeah, yeah. Like, just because you can't imagine it, that it's not a sin. It's so funny to me. Um, yeah. So I played around with that a lot. Well, I mean, I, I found that, um, all of that fascinating. And and it just, you know, it brings home again, I've, I've found this in researching my own novel, most recent novel, I found this, I talked to Rebecca McKay about uh, the great believers about this, about, this whole struggle that we all have in, in writing historical novels is that we really want to write about marginalized people, but marginalized people are not in the historical record. Right. And, and on the on the one hand, that gives us great opportunities as novelists. On the other hand, it creates great frustrations as novelists. But mm -hmm. but um, I felt like you took the opportunity um, and and <laughs> I mean, really created something that was very true to her character. Um, and yeah, and this idea that she doesn't feel guilty because there are no rules about this because the guys can't imagine making up rules. You know? <laughs> now, Marie starts the, the novel at a, at a low point. I mean, she arrives not long after she arrives at the Abbey. She even thinks of, and I'm quoting here, letting herself die. Um, talk up, talk a little bit about her character arc. How does, how does beginning at that place for us as readers create certain expectations of what the character arc might be? Hmm. 
That's a good question. I, you know, I think that um, when you start very, very low, I think a lot of times the only place to go is up. <laughs> so possibly the the expectation was that she would um, prevail, and you know, and I didn't subvert expectations there. She did prevail, or did she? I, at yep. the end, did she? I don't know. Um, I don't want to spoil anything or give anything away. Um, but yes, you're right. I think that. Um, I don't know. I think that for her, in order to create anything, to create the the book that she wrote, um, in order to try to get herself back in the court, she had to be at the breaking point, right? And it, she had to be so unhappy and so miserable that she'd do a radical act like that. And um, and then she did become, w with the failure of that um, sort of love letter off to the world, um, she she did almost succumb to acedia, um, you know, the sin of sadness, mortal sadness. And um, I think, you know, she was depressed profoundly and starving and physically uncomfortable in a way she'd never been in her entire privileged life, right? And, and um, I, you know, I think, um, she carries that through the rest of the book also like that is the point to back to which she cannot allow her nuns to to fall um yeah. and so she's fighting against that initial sadness darkness the entire rest of her life yeah and i think for the for the modern reader that's also you know it's a place where we can relate to her none of us have probably ever run our own abbey but we've all been we've all felt rejected we've all felt depressed Mm -hmm. um, we've all felt cold and hungry and confused and all the ways that she feels when she when she arrives at that moment. And mm -hmm. so to me, it kind of gets it gets us on her side at the beginning because it, it gives us a, a point of connection that is not necessarily always easy to do with a character who's living a thousand years ago and in, in a right. very different world from, from the world we're, we're living in. Um, you there's another I mean, sometimes i just like to pull out great quotes and let you talk about them and this is this was one of my favorites um you write it is a deep and human truth that most souls upon the earth are not at ease unless they find themselves safe in the hands of a force greater than themselves how, how does marie <laughs> um sort of rise up to that idea well this is a complicated idea, right? Yeah. Because it's not purely beautiful or good. I mean, I think she's trying to explain not only um, the human impulse toward God, but also the human impulse toward be, uh, obeying authoritarian rule. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and and she knows this part of herself, and and in some ways she resists it, but in some ways she deeply embraces being <laughs> like a dictator. Um, and, I, you know, this is part of my uh, trying to discuss power and um, what female power might have looked like. Um, and that just because uh, this abbey is run by women doesn't make the humans inside any less complicated or difficult or sinful, right? So, so yeah, so so I think that she, that this is an insight that she had about all of humanity, but she also applied it both as um, like as self-lashing, but also uh, permission <laughs> to do not great things sometimes. One of the other things she she laments about, and I think this is, to me, this really got at, you know, what 
the life must be for somebody who has this drudgery of running this estate when in her soul she's a poet. Um, she Marie says daily the daily kills her greatness. Um, what does she mean by that? And how do you think we, as people living in the 21st century, can keep that from happening to ourselves? <laughs> um, I think she just means that, you know, um, the paperwork and like the the constant setbacks, um, they, they keep her from sort of fully realizing her idealism. And I think this is more of just like a general human trait to feel like just the grind, the grind gets us, right? The grind is getting us down. And as writers too, um, we have to be born aloft on an almost, an almost impossible amount of hope in order to get any kind of writing done, right? Um, right, and it's almost foolish, right, to to think about how um, how much work we have to do in order to get a book in the world, um, and and the only thing getting us from point A to point B with a hopefully publishable manuscript is just this like absolutely almost um, you know bonkers, really like almost silly faith in ourselves um, that we have to maintain the entire time. So I think not letting the grind in in that way is something that we all have to just pay attention to or maybe um, dislocate ourselves so that one half of us is paying attention to, but the writer half isn't, I don't know. It's all, it's all very complicated, right? Yeah. Um, but I do think um, coming back to the sense that uh, this is our vocation, right? This is the thing that we must do in order to live is um, is the way to get through the grind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I always felt that the best historical fiction, and that certainly too in this book, doesn't just provide escapism. It doesn't just educate us about another time period or an interesting person, um, but it provides views into humanity that can stay relevant over over time, in this case, over almost a millennium. What what do you find most relevant about Marie's story as it as it unfolds in this novel for hmm. our our current time? Yeah, so my philosophy of historical fiction is that if it's going to be good, it has to acknowledge the present also, but the present moment from which the the book is being written, right? So it's it's relevant only in that it's um it's obvious to the reader when this book was written, um, it would be false to the reader to pretend that we're actually writing from the 12th century. So, um, so to have this the sense of the present speaking to the past and the past speaking back to the present and having this sort of back and forth, this kind of like, it's almost like the tension is being built because of this um, pressure from both sides. Um, that's really important to me in my philosophy of historical fiction. So, you know, I didn't write it in order to be relevant, but I did write it in order to be um, somewhat of a condemnation of the world in which we live now, um, an exploration of how we got to where we are, um, and a, um, a vision of how it could have been uh, otherwise. 
And I have to tell you, I'm so sorry. I have to pick up my child from school That's right. at um, 2:45. So I just yeah, well, we'll go. We'll go very quickly. Okay. We're gonna. We like okay. to end okay. every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same ten questions, uh, okay. and you should be able to answer each of these very quickly. So we will. Okay. We will power through. Okay. okay. What, what word do you love to work into your writing? Oh, so many words. <laughs> um, lapidary. I don't know. That's the first word that came to my mind. Okay. Um, what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? No, I was about to say something and it was not great. Um, <laughs> can I come back to that one? You can come back to that one. Um, okay. Where's your favorite place to write? I write up in a room that used to be our baby room. Um, and now it has baby dreams in it. Where could you never write? I could never write in public. Mm -hmm. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Continuous and continual. Oh, That's yeah. a really hard one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? Uh, it was one of the Brown Bear books. Mm -hmm. What are you reading now? I am, for the Miami Book Fair, I'm reading Ewan Ackman's book because I have to interview him about it. Mm -hmm. What book would you like to have written? So many. Middle March by George Eliot. That's oh, yeah, the one. Yeah. yeah. Um, what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I would love to write a Sheila Hetty book, but I think only Sheila Hetty can write those. Mm -hmm. Or Rachel Cusk. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Hear a reader tell me that I changed their way of thinking. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Lauren Groff, whose novel Matrix is available wherever books are sold. And you may still be able to get signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to best-selling novelist Sophie Kinsella about her new book, The Party Crasher. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion. <laughs>